Man, it is good to be back with y'all today. Thankful for uh, Jesse filling in last week and as we began this series on what it is to be a church member and kind of as we go through this and if you've been here with us for any significant length of time or you visit a number of times, you'll know that our normal course of study is just to get a book of the Bible and we go through verse by verse and and so when we hit the end of 1 Corinthians 14, that created a gap that allowed us to kind of step into a space and be able to address some, some different things. And one of the things we wanted to talk about was what it looks like uh, to, to step back and, and consider what the church should be. What does the Bible say about this? What does it say about church membership? And so last week, Jesse spoke on the subject of how to be a strategic church. What does that look like? What does that look like for us as a body, what does that look like for us as individual members? I mean, if you've uh, had very many conversations with folks about church, what you'll find, or what I find anyway, is that a number of the people that I visit with have been decidedly hurt and injured by a church. They, they've had some experience with a church that's really crystallized their opinion on it, and, and typically that's a negative opinion. They, they did this, and, and that injured me this way, or, or they said this, or, or they, they didn't do this. They didn't commit to this action. And so we have a terrific number of people that if you are to ask them, uh, man, how do you feel about the church? They'd run off with this whole series of things, and, and they would be decidedly negative. They'd be really, you know, just kind of a poor representation of what the New Testament says about a church. Now, I want to just kind of pause for a second and just kind of think about that. The New Testament speaks of the church as being the bride of Christ, okay? Now, if you're married or you know anything about marriage in general, imagine that somebody just started bad-mouthing your bride. Man, she is ugly. I, who? Your bride, man. She is hideous. I mean, she is an awful person. She is a dog. When I think about her, I want to vomit. Who? Your bride, your bride. That's who I'm talking about. My bride? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, dog, awful, terrible, makes me want to vomit. Like, what's taking you so long to figure these things out? That's your bride. Man, when we think of the church, the church is spoken of very, very clearly and decidedly as the bride of Christ. It changes everything. It changes our opinion on the church. It changes our investment in the church because Jesus, in his death, burial, and resurrection, created and established the conduit whereby the church has sprung. And it is the church that is tasked and given the mission of reaching lost humanity. The church, his bride. And so this question rolls around, if, if, if the church is such a big deal, and, and, and it's the bride of Christ, and, and Jesus is excited about the church, and it is his body, then how then must the church be ordered? How must it be put together? And so today we're going to look at the subject of, of what does the well-ordered church look like, or, and why must the church be well-ordered? Well, let's begin with Jesus' words to Peter in Matthew 16. We're going to be in a number of different places. If you can't make it there, you can just pencil it down and find it later. 
You'll remember Matthew 16, Jesus is having this conversation with the disciples. Who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. And, and Jesus says, wow, this is great. God, the Father's revealed this to you. And listen to what he says in verse 18. I tell you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my, everybody say church. I will build my church. And listen to what he says. He says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Friends, the church must be well-ordered if it is to last. Now, clearly, Jesus is not speaking of the individual local church as if he steps into First Baptist Jerusalem and says, look, this church is going to make it. It's going to be here. It's going to grow. It's going to be amazing. It's going to have terrific outreach for families. This church is going to make it because we have no record. We see no instances that this existed at all. There is no First Baptist Jerusalem in the days of Jesus. He wasn't talking about a local church. He's talking about the universal church. But when we begin to understand that Jesus' comments on the universal church, every Christian who is a Christian and, and how this is presented, when we begin to understand his comments on that, we begin to change our hearts and, and focus our energy and our intentionality on being well-ordered in the here and now. Amen? So Jesus, speaking of the church universal, says it is to last, and it must be well-ordered if it is to last. Now, if you've uh, been here at Ridgecrest for a few years, or if you have gone and, and had a conversation with one of the elders or one of the staff members about joining the church, then you've heard us describe kind of the way our leadership structure breaks out. And simply put, it is that we are ruled by Jesus, we are led by the elders, and we are governed by the congregation, okay? So we are ruled by Jesus, led by elders, and governed by the congregation. And so this is kind of how this unfolds and this is what this looks like. But notice that regardless of whether or not you agree on a plurality-based structure, regardless of, of what your church ecclesiology, how you understand how these things should be put together, how they should be ordered, and how they should be structured, regardless of all of these things, the New Testament, the Bible, is decidedly clear on one thing. There is one person who gets to be in charge of the church, and who wants to guess who that is? I'm sorry, Linda, you said who? Je Je Jesus! Come on now. Come on now. I'm out one week and you're missing the easy questions. Who gets to be in charge of the church? There you go. That's great. Well, let's roll with that. So Jesus gets to be in charge of the church, right? And so anytime we see elders begin to exercise uh, in a domineering fashion, is Jesus in charge of the church? No, they're usurping his authority. Anytime we see deacons rise up and they begin to kind of rule and reign in the church, who's ruling the church? They are. And they're usurping Christ's authority or they're attempting to. And anytime we see a pure democracy roll out and somebody says, I got to go to the bathroom, and everybody else says, let's vote on that. Who's trying to rule the church? They are. But who rules the church? Amen. Hallelujah. Jesus rules the church. Paul tells us in Ephesians, he tells us in Colossians that Christ is the head of the church. Flip over Ephesians 1.22. Speaking of God and Christ, he says, And God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. If the church, the church must be well-ordered if it is to glorify God. It must be well-ordered if it's to glorify God. And so we can, we can learn from our experience, we can hear from our friends, we can see in our community how these things, that when they begin to slip away from this understanding that Christ rules the church, 
that when these things move away from this, and somebody, when they think of a church, they think of its, its humanly leaders, or they think of problems that have been created in the church on the basis of its humanly leaders, it's an indication that we have moved away from a right understanding of Christ ruling and reigning in the church. He and he alone rules the church because he and he alone is head over the church, is head over the church. Man, that's a, that's a responsibility. That is a position of authority that can rest on no man or woman's shoulders that rests solely and squarely in the mind of God and in the person of Jesus. Jesus alone rules the church. And when we understand this, it, it just sets us up to be free to exercise our gifts. It frees us up to glorify him because the church is not about what we're making and we're primarily not advocating that somebody, man, come to Ridgecrest. It's the greatest church you've ever been to. No, we say, come to Jesus. He's the greatest savior you could ever know. And so we're never driving our own agenda. We're never driving our own brand. We're always and only ever pushing Jesus. Him we worship, him we adore, him we submit to. Jesus rules and rules eternally over the church. If the church, and it must, it must be well-ordered, it is to glorify God. And we do this when we submit to Jesus. He and he alone rules and reigns in the church. If the, if the church, and it must be, well-ordered is to be effective, it must be effective. Well, think about this in these terms, okay? Over the last probably two months, I've had a significant issue in my home. I mean, it's just, it's just uh, like just thinking about it now, I get super frustrated and just want to shake this thing. I, 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 I've been under attack, y'all. Now, this would be the time that you would anticipate that I'd talk about some spiritual thing and maybe cry a few tears, but... But the onslaught of armadillos at my house has been unreal. <laughs> right? And so it all started a number of months ago. I brought in some fresh mulch and really made the beds look great. And, and then we went the next step. And we had this sprinkler guy come in and put sprinkler uh, lines underneath there. And it's just beautiful. It's immaculate. The bushes are singing. I'm out talking to them. The birds and the bees are just kind of whizzing in and out. And then I walk out the next day and it was like trench warfare. Somebody had just tunneled. So I asked the kids, I said, what did you do last night? <laughs> I put you to bed, what in the world? I pulled my neighbors, what is wrong with you? I have a sandbox outside, dig in it. So I began to discover that it's this insidious varmint, it's this armadillo, okay? And so he's not content just to go out of grubs in the yard, and I'm totally fine with that. We need to aerate the grass. But he's pulling up these sprinkler lines. He's just going to town. And so I talked to a friend, and he says, what you need is a trap. And so I set the trap out. Well, the trap wasn't set the right way. I think the armadillo had a tea party in the trap. And so then we get that settled, and we set the trap out, and I caught him. I caught him. And so I go out there, and I talk to him. I give him a stern talking to. And I'm, I'm, feeling, I'm feeling generous, which isn't often for me. So I decide to go with it. And so I say, I'm going to set you free somewhere else, somewhere a long ways away, because somebody else needs to have this sanctifying experience. <laughs> and so, uh, so I, I load him in my car, and I put him under a piece of, uh, or put him on top of a piece of uh, cardboard, and he, he urinates on that, and I appreciated that. Thank you so much. And so I'm rolling down with all my windows down and my face this far from the vent, because y'all, armadillos stink. There's a reason they don't have very many friends. They smell strongly. Anyway, so I, I get him out. I set him free. I even took a picture and sent it to the guy whose property I sent it free on and said, here you go. You're welcome. And it was great. 
Like for two or three days, it was amazing. My wife said, you're smiling, what's going on? I said, he's free. We named him Little Jeff. Little Jeff was free. But then his cousins came. (laughs) And I tell you what, uh, Jeff was not bright. We set him free. And I think he appreciated that. But his cousins are super smart. I I set a trap out. They dug underneath the trap and got into the backyard. They're taunting me. One morning I came out. They had tripped the trap, but were still not caught. They are still not caught today. And I got to be honest, when the time comes, and friends, the time will come when I catch Jeff's cousin generosity has met its end. <laughs> I've gone in and I've, I've clogged every hole in the fence and I, I've fixed everything. He can't burrow. He can't get in there. He will come to the trap. And when he comes to the trap, he will meet justice and justice will be swift and it will be named nine millimeter. <laughs> but man, when we think about all the links we go to in the church and all the various ways we exercise ways of, of trying to be effective and all the different ways we've seen this messed up, right? And so we've been in churches when the pastor wants to go a certain direction and the deacons rise up and like, you're not going to do this. This isn't going to happen. This is our church. And things go uh, sideways. And maybe you've been in churches where the elders are heavy handed and, and the church is going a certain direction and, and you really begin to sense that, man, they're just, they're, they're keeping such an incredibly tight rein that I don't feel like I can move or sell my car or make significant decisions in my life without running it by them, and we felt the oppressiveness in that. And maybe you've been at the church uh, that's just kind of manifest destiny of everyone, when everybody just kind of gets to be in charge, and, and there's, there's no clear sense of, of direction and how this is going, and it becomes just kind of complete and utter chaos. Everybody feels really good, but nothing ever, nothing ever gets done. Well, let's look just, just briefly at how these things work out in terms of what do elders do, what do they look like, what do deacons do, what do they look like, and then we're going to have a whole week on members, but I want to take just a moment to look at the idea of membership as well, okay? Now, understand this, who rules the church? Jesus. But in terms of biblical anatomy, we only see two parts to the kind of the corpus, right? We see the head and we see the body, thank you. And so we see the head and we see the body. So from this body, we take elders, we take deacons, and we take laity. So all of us exist, no matter what uh, role you serve here at the church, uh, whether you're an elder, whether you're on staff, whether you're a deacon, whether you are just uh, a lay member, all of us exist as a part of the body. And the body must all be headed in the same direction at the same time, or it creates chaos. And it's not effective because it's not well-ordered. So let's talk about elders. Well, if you want to get qualifications of elders, and maybe you want to look at this later, you can go to 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, or to Titus 1, 5 through 9. He lists a number of different qualifications, Paul does, on on, on what they need to look like and, and what their background in some sense needs to be. But I think it's more fruitful in terms of time for us to simply consider what must their heart look like. What is their role and responsibility? But yes, but, but what must their heart look like? And so 1 Peter 5, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4 begins to uh, address this. Peter writes, and he wants to find commonality with those that he writes with. So he says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Listen to the command here shepherd the flock of God 
shepherd the flock of God. To these would-be elders and overseers, he gives a singular command and a simple command to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but by being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. What is the command he gives to the elders? Quite simply, it is to shepherd. It's to shepherd. Now, interestingly, if we think about this idea of of shepherding for a minute, and you flip over to John chapter 10, Jesus has done us a solid. He gives us a, a wonderful example of what the shepherd or what the shepherd's responsibility looks like. Later on, you can read John 10 all the way through, uh, from 1 through verse 18, but let's just look at a couple of things. Let's look at verse 3 to start off with. Verse 3 in John chapter 10. Jesus says, To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep out by name. He leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice quite simply when the sheep think of the shepherd they both know and trust him they both know and trust him and so john gives us this imagery through jesus that jesus says when the shepherd steps in and the sheep begin to hear him talking they clue in and say that's the guy to follow and i know that where he leads me isn't dangerous so where he leads me is for my good and so taking this from jesus and applying it then to the heart of what an elder should look like an elder should be able to be known and trusted by those he's shepherding but we begin to think of elders in terms of what peter said he says they need to exercise oversight but they need not be domineering one of the one of the problems I think that we see, not just in pastors, but what we see when we give people authority is that they take that authority unto themselves and they begin to wield it in an unhealthy way, right? So if you give somebody authority to make decisions for you and then they begin to kind of have scope creep and they move into areas that you've not really given them authority, you've not really given them permission to speak in, it begins to feel a little bit oppressive. Well, one of the problems I think that can happen, whether a single elder, a plural elder, whatever, whatever structure you have in a church, is that there is a tendency to move towards being domineering, ruling, and having absolute authority and rule. You know, one of the things that keeps that safeguard in place is when they readily remember and consistently apply the fact that who rules the church? Jesus. They don't get to rule the church. Their opinions don't get to rule the church. Their personalities don't get to rule the church. Their dictates don't get to rule the church. And so when we understand this picture that domineering attitudes and personalities can have no place, we meet that directly in John 10 here in uh, this, this, this brilliant teaching Jesus has again in verses 11 through 13. Jesus says of himself, I am the good shepherd. And then he defines it for us. He says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees. Why? Because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. 
too many churches experience what it feels like as a parishioner and as a layperson to have a shepherd that cares nothing for you. And they care a lot about their office, they care a lot about their power and authority, but they care nothing for you as a person. They care nothing for the church at all. They're pursuing something else. And what we see from Christ's word in his instruction here is to categorize them instead of being a good shepherd, they're nothing more than a hired hand, which Peter as well addressed. He says, don't do this for shameful gain. Don't do this because of what it can get you. Do this because of the role God has asked you to serve in. This is what an elder's heart should look like. This is what their ministry should be like. Now, of course, there are, there are opportunities for anybody to get their feelings hurt, right? We're all people. We can all have a tendency to be selfish, some of us more than others, or so I've been told. But what we recognize is that over and again, this should be the posture and position of their heart, regardless of what church you find yourself in. This is what they should look like. Well, let's think about the idea of deacons. Deacons, I think, honestly, for too long have been just the, the butt of ecclesial jokes, right? And so somebody says, oh, you know, we need something done in the church. Don't give it to a deacon. They'll just mess it up. Don't give that to a deacon. They'll just ruin things. And so just whatever ill you want to find in the church, just insert the word deacon. And this is just kind of how they've been described for a long time. And it, when, I think when you look at Scripture, you find that this joke should have no application in the local church. It should have no application in the local church. The local church, as it began to grow and, and, and grow numerically and just increase, Luke tells us in Acts 6, he says, Now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose among the Hellenists because the Hebrew widows, or, uh, because the, the Hellenist widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So those widows of a Greek origin, when they were handing out stuff, they were getting passed over. They weren't given, being given out what they should have. So the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. And this is where we derive our understanding or where we get our word deacon. It's the verbal form there, to serve. He says, therefore, brothers, pick out among, from among you seven men. And look at how he describes them. Men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. He says, who are the most solid individuals that you know? When you think of people that are out there serving and serving faithfully, drawing no attention to themselves and giving themselves to this task for the glory of God, and they say, this is who we get. And the first uh, martyr record in there is Stephen, who himself was a deacon. You can continue to read the qualifications of the deacon in 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. But deacons are not given the commission, they're not given the charge to lead the church. And then when they begin to operate outside of their God-given designation, it introduces the, the possibility of terrific discord and problems. And you've seen this. And we've seen this in Southern Baptist churches to the point that, that it is this terrific punchline. Oh, we want to do this? Man, have you run this by the deacon jet? As if they're the stopgap for, for orthodoxy, right? As if they're the litmus test for what is right and wrong with the world. 
their intentionality and their focus should be on service because that's what their name is, not leading, because that is not what their job is. And when we conflate, when we mistake, when we introduce the problem of leadership into this role, we create the possibility of terrific damage to the local church because we've entrusted to them and given them a commission and a responsibility that is not biblically theirs to wield and exercise. So what about members? What about members? What about the, the, really the bulk of any church? What is a member? Well, we're going to have a full week on the role and responsibilities of members. And so let's look at it from a different direction. Back in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5, he's speaking of the church. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So as you draw near to Jesus, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Do you notice all that's transpiring there? He says, this is what he's making you. He's taking all of you, all of your different personalities, all of your different giftings, all of your different shortcomings, and he's building you guys into a temple for an express purpose to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. God has made you something distinctly different through the shed blood of Christ. And as he has made you different, he makes you whole in the church. He's building you together. And it is your responsibility in the midst of this to offer spiritual sacrifices. So in your prayer, in your biblical service, in your worship, in your evangelism, all of these things are your tasks, roles, and responsibility rendered to God. And he's making you into this wonderful structure. And when we pull back personally and individually, when I remove and cut myself off from the local church, I remove my ability, ability to be rightly engaged in this process. Because of my opinions, because of my experiences, because of my shortcomings or their shortcomings, or for whatever reason, when I say, that's the church over there, but I'm going to operate over here in the silo, I'm cutting myself off from the visible manifestation of what God is doing. The church isn't perfect, right? Nobody's saying that it is. And our experiences let us know that it's not. It's not perfect, but it's what God has given us. And it's what he's called us to be invested in. Listen to who you are. Going on in 1 Peter verses 9 and 10, speaking of the church, speaking of its members, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. For what purpose? Why has God made you his special people? Why has he made you his possession? He says, it's this, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So this is beautiful transference of the gospel. That God found you wayward and lost in sin, enmeshed in sin, and you liked it. You were living in darkness, and you knew nothing else. And he reached into the darkness of your life, into the sinfulness of your life, with the blood of Jesus, and he pulled you from out of it. And he's taken possession of you. 
He's called you out of darkness and into light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God, on the basis of his great love, demonstrated in the sacrifice of his son Jesus, has made us a people. Isn't that amazing? Peter goes through and he appropriates all of this this Jewish nomenclature and he applies it to the church and helps them understand that even though you feel like you have no backstory and even though you feel like an outcast and even though you feel like you're completely headed in the wrong direction, God has made you his special people, his possession so that we may proclaim his excellency, so that we might give to him, surrender to him, submit to him spiritual sacrifices. But the church is entrusted with something else as well. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, speaking of the church, speaking of, of its role and its responsibility, he says that it is a pillar and buttress of the truth. This is what the church of the living God is. So as you sit there on Sundays, and, and whether it be Jesse or some other speaker, you visit some other church, or maybe you're just here passing through town, one of your roles and responsibility as a member of the church of God is to sit there with your Bible, to hear what is spoken, and to look down and say, does this accord with Scripture? Is this right? And so that's your role and responsibility in the church, but even in the community, when you're out and you hear somebody say something about the church, you find ways to to be in that conversation and to offer kind, wonderfully, winsome corrective. Notice I didn't say to walk up and slap them and say, what is wrong with you? I pity the fool who would say such a ridiculous thing. Let me slap you again and tell you why you're wrong. That's neither winsome nor wonderful. But we're able to offer a corrective to errant and wayward theology if we, by virtue of investing ourselves in our community, in the lives of those of our neighborhood, in our workplace, and in our community, and take the ideas that Jesse displayed in being strategic in forming and fashioning relationships, if we would encumber and take on the difficulty of altering our routine and and, and the ways we go about doing things, if we would make them more difficult and, and have that investment of our lives, then we could demonstrate what it looks like to be a pillar and buttress for the truth. Instead of what it normally looks like for us, passive indifference or just, it's okay for them to be wrong. Let me just throw this out there as a caveat, okay? This is what it's not. It's not taking the low-hanging fruit of just blasting something on social media. Because it just doesn't get anywhere. You're speaking into an echo chamber that nobody else wants to be in with you. You're saying these things over and over again, and the people that like your comments are the people who already agree with you before you said anything. It's not how it works. Stop doing it. Or at least stop doing it and think that this is what it looks like for you to stand for the truth. Standing for the truth is going to cost you something, and it's going to require your interpersonal engagement. Interpersonal engagement. Bryce, come here. (laughs) Stand right there for a second, okay? Yeah, I just, I just, I just think he's wrong. I just, I just don't know. I just, I just don't think that's right. I just, man, I just, I just don't know. Do you feel like you're impacted right now? 
No, not really, but check it out. <laughs> Interpersonal engagement. As I draw near to him and I'm able to have conversations with him and he knows me and he knows that I love him and he knows that I care for him, it radically transformed my ability to stand as a pillar and a buttress for the truth, right? This is what we need to be about. This is what it needs to look like. Amen, I appreciate it. Love you. The church has to be well-ordered if it's going to last. The church has to be well-ordered if it's going to glorify God. The church has to be well-ordered if it's going to be effective. And the church has to be well-ordered if it's going to be ready for its future. Now listen, we started with the idea that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church, that the church is going to last. But we look around and, and we see that society is, is not headed in, in a way that it's just everybody singing, uh, you know, friends are friends forever and, and going down. And, and, and we see all the churches uniting. We see whole communities in the, in the south turning to Jesus. Like this doesn't seem to be kind of what we see playing out. Instead, we see churches fracturing and churches uh, dissolving and, and bad things happening in churches. And more often than not, we hear of more negative than positive uh, in churches. And, and for many of us, that's our experience, right? And so there's this temptation to believe that maybe Jesus was speaking in hyperbole. Maybe he was just prone to exaggeration. When he says the gates of hell will not prevail against it, I seem to smell an awful lot of sulfur. I seem to, to see an awful lot of flames, and I seem to see an awful lot of charred Christians limping from church to church to church. Our observation begins to impact our reading of the text, and that's what we see. Man, I'm here today to testify and to tell you his church will last. His word was true when he said it, that the gates of hell would not uh, prevail against it. They would not overcome his church. And his picture of the future shows us this truth will ring forever and ever. In Revelation 19 in Revelation 19, verses 6 through 8, John writes, and he says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Why is he so excited? He says, the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The church will be presented to Christ as a pure bride, adorned in white linen and given to him at the marriage supper of the lamb. This is the future of God's church. So every time we see a church fail, we recognize that the church itself is not failing. And every time we see a church attacked, we recognize that the church's future is secure. And if we want to be a part of securing his local church, it requires all of us. All of us. Not a single person in this room or this hearing is dispensable. Not a single person can be gotten rid of. We are all 
required. All Christians are required if the local church is to match the future of the universal church. Will you join with me? This is the question he asks for every Christian to respond to. Will you join with me? Will you reverence the church? Will you reverence his bride? And will you be a part of the body? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness, for an opportunity to study your word for its clarity. God, I pray that you would work in our hearts as we seek to submit ourselves to you in all things. Father, I pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to you, that they have been carefully considering the claims of Christ, his offer of salvation. God, that you would work in their hearts to show them the truthfulness of what you say about yourself, the truthfulness of the sacrifice of Jesus, his blood shed, that they might be saved from their sins redeemed forevermore. God, I pray for us as a church, and I pray for the churches of our community and beyond, that they would indeed be well-ordered. And that being well-ordered, you might receive glory and honor, that being well-ordered, they might be effective, impactful in their communities. God, would you give us a love for your church? certainly a greater love for your church than we have for ourselves and our own opinions and ideas. Father, we submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.